the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, post-apocalyptic visions of gunslingers and dragons, pop-up force-filled aquariums. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. Hey, we have a good one this time. It's an interview with John Ringo, Casey Ezel, and Christopher L. Smith talking about their new book, Gunpowder and Embers. It's a great new post-apocalypse sort of Western martial arts adventure novel. Really cool stuff. Of course, science fiction. Also sitting in on the interview is Bain publisher Tony Weiskopf. This will be part one of a two-part interview, by the way, so that's coming up. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's great high fantasy novel, Son of the Black Sword. Now here's the news. The January E-Arcs are now out of the gates and into the races for you to saddle up and ride if you dare, and you must because it's so much fun. Now an ARC is an acronym for an ant related to a cricket, which is a hybrid beast known throughout the insect world as a vicious killer, but also a voracious lover. No, no, no. An ARC is an advanced reading copy of a book, and an EARC is the ebook version of that. We create them when we create the galleys for the authors to review and reviewers to read for book reviews, and we sell them to you so that you can get your favorite author or series or try out a new author months in advance of their appearance in print. The only caveat is there may be a few typos in there to add to the chunky nuttiness of the flavor. Out now is Starborn and Godson's E-Arc by Larry Niven, Jerry Pornell, and Stephen Barnes. Oh boy, this is a good one, and this is a long-awaited finale to this great series, the final collaboration by a master of military, S.F. Avalon was finally thriving. The cold-sleep colonists from Earth had settled on a verdant, livable world. The fast and cunning predators humans named Grendels were under control, and mainland outpost had been established. Humans would survive, but unbeknownst to the planet-bound humans, something was moving in the stars. Its destination, Avalon. Its probable origin, Earth's solar system. The passengers it carried would change this world forever. The long-awaited conclusion from science fiction legends Larry Niven, Jerry Pornell, and Stephen Barnes. Also out now is Overruled E-Arc by Hank Davis and Christopher Rocchio. Lawyers, ray guns, and money. Whatever the future may hold, one thing is certain. Whenever two people get together, the possibility for disagreement will always be present. And when there are conflicts that need settling... Lawyers won't be far behind. Here, then, a collection of science fiction tales of men and women who try to balance the scales of justice on a cosmic scale. Classics by Robert A. Heinlein, Larry Niven, Clifford D. Simak, Robert Silverberg, and more. And hey, some new stories by Christopher Rocchio. One by me, Sarah A. Hoyt, and more. Overruled E-Arc, edited by Hank Davis and Christopher Rocchio. 
and Starboard and Godsons by Larry Niven, Jerry Pornell, and Stephen Barnes are now available exclusively at Bane.com. Get them hot off the grill. This is part one of a two-part interview. Part two will be available next time on the podcast. want to welcome John Ringo, Casey Ezel, Christopher L. Smith, and hey, Tony Weiskopf, Bain Publisher, is here as well. Welcome all to the podcast. Hello, folks. Thank you hey, for Ringo. having us. Yeah, thank you very much. Well, let me uh, introduce everyone. John Ringo, Tony Weiskopf, the publisher here at Bain, um, boss lady. John Ringo is the creator of the Postline War series, a New York Times bestselling series with over a million copies in print. It contains the hymn before battle, Gus Front, when the devil dances and... A lot of other books written by John Alon. More books was uh, in the series, co-authored with uh, Michael Z. Williamson, Tom Crapman, and Julie Cochran. John has penned the Council War series. He created the national best-selling military adventure. This is going to take the entire podcast. Hi, I'm John Ringo, and you're not. Moving on. I mean, when you get into the anthologies, when you get into the spinoffs, when you get into the collaborations, uh, I mean, I don't know. I, and Tony, do you know how many books there are? Because I've been trying to count for years, and I keep coming up with different numbers. I mean, it's like at 56, 58. I, I think it's one, two, three, many at this point, John. Yeah. <laughs> well, like Kevin Costner says in Dances with Wolf, they are like the stars. <laughs> um, all right, all right. We'll skip all that crap. Um, <laughs> he is the author of the Black Tide Rising series recently and the Monster Hunter Memoirs uh, series with Larry Correa. Um, and... He's a veteran of the 82nd Airborne and uh, knows a lot about Army crap. Um, <laughs> Casey Ezell knows a lot about Air Force crap because she is a USAF air uh, helicopter pilot who writes science fiction, fantasy, alt history, and horror fiction. Her first novel was a Dragon Award finalist in 2018, and her stories have been featured in Bain Shear's Best Military and Adventure Science Fiction Compilation, and she won one of those as uh, as the best story of the year um in 2018 so and so that's good and she's just been popping up all over the place she's an up-and-coming uh great new writer that, that we're happy to support as is christopher l smith um who is not a native texan by birth but um feels like that's his home as soon as he he, he could get there he went there um he he met a wonderful lady who found him to be funny, charming, and worth marrying, and he began writing fiction. His short stories can be found in anthologies like The Black Tide Rising, Anthology Forged in Blood, and The Good, the Bad, and the Merc, among others. He's co-written two novels. A solo urban fantasy novel is currently under construction. Wait a minute. Uh, no, that's not this one. <laughs> His... His cats allow his family and three dogs to reside with him out with them outside of San Antonio. And now at booksellers everywhere is Gunpowder and Embers by John Ringo, Casey Ezel, and Christopher L. Smith. Um, this uh, this just has the feel of a Ringo world, John. Um, how did this? Uh, how did how did? I would like to make a uh, yeah. a uh, a point about Chris. His official name is yeah. not Chris nor Christopher. His official name is Beer Guy. Beer Guy, <laughs> yes, yeah. He is the Beer Guy. 
is he, he is the beer guy but he is many many other things including a, a very talented writer um, and I really like the way that the three of you have combined uh, to, to make the magic of, of this novel but it all started with 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 John Ringo and giant ants um, so uh, John you want to explain how, how you created this world well, do I want to talk about the Genesis? Because it wasn't originally designed for Chris yeah. Case. Okay. So yeah, sure. what happened yeah. with this was a long time back, uh, there was this minor author named Larry Correa uh, mm. that nobody had ever heard of. And because he was an up-and-comer and because Zane really liked the way that he wrote and everything, they did what they usually do, which was they teamed him up with somebody who had a little bit more of a CV, um, namely John Ringo. And I talked to Larry, and we batted some stuff around. And I am not a huge fan of the steampunk punk genre, but he was. So I set out to create a... This is actually a post-apocalyptic world. Um, yep. And I really didn't have much of an idea, uh, but I was actually on a trip. I do some of my best thinking when I'm driving. Um, and I just came up with this kind of crazy idea. And... Uh, and more or less dictated it to my wife, Miriam, while we were driving in the car. She was just taking notes. So I got home and I wrote it up, and I sent it to Larry, and it kind of sat there. Um, we had done a three-book contract uh, for A New World, and it had been approved by Maine. And it just kind of sat there and languished, because Larry was much more seriously interested in his other units. In the meantime, some stuff happened in the real world, which raised Larry's... Uh, visibility, and also raised the sale. Um, and uh don't know if we even want to mention what it was, but raised his, his visibility quite a bit. Um, and then I reread his Monster Hunter series and got a wild hair and wrote three Monster Hunter books, which, you, which Tony had mentioned. And thus, the contract was taken care of. So I had this world sitting there that was ready to be written. Um... Uh, Tony Weisskopf, uh, uh, myself, uh, Chris and Casey all attend a particular science fiction convention in Chattanooga, um, Liberty Con. And Chris and Casey and I were sitting around just talking stuff. And we came up with what we consider to be an interesting world and went to Tony and pitched it. And she said, no. As a matter of fact, hell no. No, that sucks. <laughs> um, <laughs> and she told us why um, and it was very very straightforward this doesn't sell well because of this thing and this doesn't sell well because of she, had, she had very professional reasons to shoot us out of the sky like a bomber over Berlin um, <laughs> I mean man we came apart like a, a B-17 just being hit by black but she said, uh, what about that uh, universe that you created for Larry? I went, Ugh. And thus began Gunpowder and Empire. And that's the entire genesis of the story. It, it, it was fun watching watching the three of you uh, uh, turn from abject despair to, oh, 
wait, maybe we can make this work. And uh, the, the, the world that you created was, was one that I really, really liked. So um, I was so pleased to, to, to get to see the three of you turn this into a, uh, uh, well, ho hopefully three books. Um, but uh, certainly the first book is uh, just really engaging and fun and uh, has, has got so, so much uh, energy to it um, that I think readers are going to really, really enjoy it. Um, one of the things that affected this when we started working on it is that, uh, and I haven't discussed this with Tony, and uh, I don't know how she feels about it. Um, I didn't actually discuss it with my co-author, but I have been studying uh, a Chinese tale called Journey to the West. Um, mm. And it's one of these things which is studied intensively, and you see it in movies all the time, and there's some TV shows, Chinese TV shows, uh, called The Monkey King. Um, and there yeah. was a really bad... Uh, movie with uh, uh, Jackie Chan that was sort of a, a, a rip-off of it, more or less. But one of the things that I was looking at was, uh, from the point of view of all of the characters interacting with the main character, is each of the characters essentially represents a different philosophy of life. And mm -hmm. it's about how does this team in this situation that he's in uh, how does he draw from those different philosophies to become a whole person? One thing I wanted to make sure beforehand, though, is that is that we have mentioned the setup of the world, right? That giant ants from another dimension have come and sucked all the electricity away, and that's the bad thing. It's actually more well, than ants. Um, there's actually an entire... Uh, that In the book, we don't get into it very much because the minor ones, aren't a big deal, but there's there was an entire ecosystem that for some reason just descended on Earth through transdimensional. Nobody was ever too sure exactly what happened. The original genesis of the story uh, is, or the original genesis of this post-apocalyptic world is that a an ecosystem came in from somewhere else, presumably through transdimensional or transuniversal rifts. Um, and the uh, ant-like creatures and the insect-like creatures of that ecosystem uh, can use electricity for energy. So uh, most of the, the food consumption animals do has to do with energy as opposed to building. And by using electricity, it makes them much, much more effective as organisms. And because they have modifications. The giant ants are not, in fact, ants. They just look a lot like them. Um, it's what's called, what's called convergent evolution. Um, and, and a giant, we're talking about, the biggest ones are the size of a rhino. Um, but they very, very quickly destroyed civilization by eating the power. And initially, when we wrote this, there was a very long prologue, about three chapters which which covers the fall of humanity, um, or at least the initial issues. Um, and then when we looked at that, we went, eh, that doesn't actually work very well. It was very jarring. Um, so we just pulled it. Uh, and But that, that covered the fall of civilization. And then this story takes place uh, 30 years later, I believe. Um, Yep. 
little more than 30, about 33 years later. And, uh, and so you start off meeting this family, which is living in a, uh, sort of 1870s lifestyle, but with some aspects of remaining technology, mostly in their gun technology, because they have better guns. Um, and that's where the story starts. Talk about the quest in the book. Um, what is the book about? Um, this gunslinger shows up. He's called the gunslinger because um, <laughs> all these uh, all these guys seem to have uh, uh, handles. Um, and he's got a key. What what does that mean? And what what are they ultimately after here? The the electrovore the electrovores that came through. Um, immediately started damaging the electrical grid. Now, they were drawing power from the electrical grid to be able to grow and reproduce, but they immediately destroyed the electrical grid as well. Um, the most, robu- most robust electrical generation system there is is uh, hydroelectric dams. Now, they require maintenance, don't get me wrong, But in comparison to nuclear or natural gas or anything like that, their actual fuel source, if you will, is more or less continuously flowing water. Um, And uh, they are lower maintenance than just about anything else. Uh, Nonetheless, when these gants would get into them, they would destroy everything that made them work. So there was, uh, I don't think it's explicated in the book, but there was a an entomologist who figured out how to move into the ant uh, ant hives and live among the ants. And that created the gant cultists, um, which are sort of the, the direct, the, 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 uh, the opposition to the wind fists, who are humans who live in and among the ants. Um, and they maintain hydroelectric dams. Now, the larger, uh, back when everything was falling apart, they somehow managed to figure out, and this is complete hand wavium, if you know anything about nuclear weapons, but they somehow managed to figure out a nuclear weapon that did not require electronics. Um, and they made one of these things, which is very much a sort of cyberpunkish. it's all gears and stuff. Uh, they made six of them, to destroy the six largest hydroelectric dams in the United States. Um, and six teams went in, five of them succeeded, uh, two of the teams were wiped out completely when they couldn't get out before the bomb went off, um, but one of them just failed to detonate, and it was in the largest dam in the United States, which was the Grand Coulee Dam. And so... What the whole quest is about is now they have everything they need to set that bomb off. And it was, they're under the impression, uh, you know, everybody was pretty sure that what happened was the team got wiped out before it could blow it. Um, and so the whole quest is about getting all the pieces they need to go back in there and blow that, thus destroying the largest scant uh, colony in North America. And once they can get rid of that gant colony, maybe we can start rebuilding things and start pushing back. Um, but uh, that's what the essential quest is. And this kid, Chuck, is the one who gets handed the keys and gets told, 
go get this done by his dad, who was somebody. And you're not exactly sure who his dad was on. How much did you come up with at first, and how much did um, the the sort of synthesis of Casey and Chris and, and you... Um, like for instance, did you have the characters in your original conception or did you invent them together? What, how much was, uh, ready made for them? When I initially did it, I did it with the, there were three primary characters. They were all male. Um, and they were, uh, Chuck, the central character, Jay, who is, uh, sort of the, the, the well, he's, he's sort of the comic relief. And yet, at the same time, he's actually the most capable character there. Um, and uh, the Wind Fist. And at the time, I didn't have a name for the Wind Fist. But those are the three characters that I primarily... Uh, those were the three characters that were in the outline. And then when Chris and Casey came in, they said, yeah, we need we need this balanced out a little bit more. Um, and I can't remember Ariel might have been in the outline, but... Um, Casey, can Briefly. you... She- yeah, so Ariel was initially mentioned as um, basically as a love interest for Chuck uh, to um, not necessarily come in at the beginning of the story, but um, you know for for the them end. to encounter right. her. Yeah, and then and then she would play a key role at the end um, of the arc, which we haven't gotten to yet. Um, and uh, when John explained his concept that he wanted to um, play with, with basically having these these supporting characters represent different uh, motivations and driving forces and, and worldviews that influence where Chuck as the, you know, as the main character, as the, the subject of this building's Roman arc, um, you know, that, that influence and inform the, the way he builds his own self-concept and world picture. Um, we, you know, it, it, we knew we needed, and basically an even number in order to not just an even number, but we needed a little bit more balance and really, really like telling stories about girls. <laughs> so, so I was like, John, let me put a girl in. <laughs> and so, um, so, uh, uh, the three of us together sort of brainstormed and came up with this concept of, um, Jasmine, um, the, the dragon tamer, um, as a, uh, um, as a somewhat of a personification, but also a representation of, um, instinct and following your instinct and, um, um, you know, you're listening to your gut feeling and letting that guide the way that you approach the world and, and handle things. So, yeah. And then, and well, then from there, we, we took Ariel and expanded her to, to basically be, be the opposite, which is, um, she's sort of the avatar of, um, you know, logic and, and, um, um, reasoning things out and and doing things in a in a mathematical and precise way as opposed to you know screw it let's burn them all down. <laughs> so. she's, she's sort of the Spock character. Uh, Ariel is sort of the Spock character, which which is a fascinating approach to it. Um, one of the things about Jasmine is is that Jasmine was very much Casey's creation, um, and I'm not absolutely certain how much of, of that Chris wrote. But Jasmine's a great character, as is Ariel, um, and uh, and and the the interplay between the two of them is uh, uh, sort of bone Spock, if you go back to the old Star Trek. Um, so you have this, you know, this, and, and that is part of the. But then with the two male characters, um, the two more or less adult male characters, you have the choice between. Uh, uh, in D and D terms, 
um, you have the choice between uh, order and chaos. Because Jay is yeah. very much a chaotic character. Um, and the, the Wind Fist is all about follow the rules, do it exactly right, etc. So you've got these four characters that, that that Chuck is sort of in the middle of and trying to figure out sort of which way he wants to go. So um, the, the different fighting styles and philosophies yeah. is, is kind of, you know, Jay is, he's the drunken master, right? I mean, that's my identity of him when I was... I, I borrowed heavily from uh, both Paint Your Wagon and uh, Cat Baloo, Lee Marvin's characters in both of those movies for Jay. Yeah. Yeah, okay. A lot. <laughs> it, well, it, it kind of goes with what John was saying about having the, the total chaos, which is either Kid Shalene or Ben Rumson, those two characters. And then you have um, Garmin, who is, you know, more orderly uh, along the lines of... Uh, partner from from paint your wagon on eastwood's character so he's you know very trying very hard to do the right thing and be their good man and then he's got jay over there who's either constantly bailing out of trouble or getting into trouble with jay is honestly one of my favorite characters in this story because he um he he is he's, he's representative of chaos and and that is the certainly the face that he turns to the world you know he's the drunken master but like the drunken master piece of it there's there's definitely something underneath that. And my favorite scenes that we wrote have to do with when we get those glimpses of what is actually underneath Jay's facade of, um, you know, drunken lechery that he, that he just sort of puts out there into the world. I mean, he is that person for sure, but he's also, um, he's also the, the mentor character in the, you know, in the like Iliad Odyssey sense of mentor um, who is, shaping Chuck and putting Chuck in a position where he gets to learn about leadership and learn about working with a team and, um, and making decisions and dealing with the consequence of those decisions. Um, and, um, it, I did not expect to come, I did not expect to fall as much in love with Jay as I did, as I, as I wound up doing by the end of the book because of that, because, you know, every once in a while we get these glimpses of this very complex, person underneath the uh you know underneath the the, the the right right yep um i'm i'm a huge fan of a uh a mildly obscure science fiction author called h beam piper um <laughs> and he's best known for the fuzzy books uh but he wrote a lot of stuff and one of the books that he wrote was called uh well it was a uh, novella called four day planet and in Four Day Planet, the, which takes place uh, mostly in a city on a planet that has mostly been abandoned, very hostile world, um, and it's a very dystopic environment. But in the middle of this dystopic environment is this sort of Tom Bombadil character that's just called the Bishop. Um, mm. And some people say he's a defrocked bishop, and he's constantly drunk on Balder honey rum. I mean, to the point that he, he's staggering everywhere, constantly. I mean, he's just an old lush. Uh, as it turns out, giving away for anybody who ever reads this, um, he's what's called a, a star agent of Terra, which uh, he's a, like a four-star general uh, law enforcement officer. Um, <laughs> and as it turns out, he's entirely, he's entirely resistant to alcohol. 
I mean, he's never been drunk the whole time. He drinks huge amounts, but mm-hmm. he's entirely resistant to alcohol. Um, and so I've always loved that character that appears to be just a bumbling fool, but underneath that, there's something else going on. So that, that was something that I was really glad that we did bring out in this book. But you always get that hint that there's something else going on with Jay. I don't want to say exactly what's going yeah. on with Jay. I think we managed. Yeah, it's like little shades of Citizen of the Galaxy as well. Yeah, right. Bathlet. Right. Colonel Bathlet. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that was a trope that you found in classic science fiction, that there was this person that uh, appeared to be a nobody but was actually a somebody. Um, right. And uh, that, Armor. that was kind of the trope that we remember with that with Felix. It's it's the same thing with uh, with Obi Wan Kenobi in the in you know episode four of Star Wars. You, you think he's just this old man sitting in the desert, and you find out he's you know um, arguably the last remaining the Jedi. Jedi. So yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's what makes makes this a, a powerful um, uh, tool in, uh, in in your writer's toolbox is that you don't have to be familiar with other treatments of it to be able to. Uh, to use it and make it your own. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. A lot of people and it was a lot of fun. Tropes. It was a lot of fun to do. A lot of people diss tropes. Um, you know, a lot of people say, oh, that's just a trope. Um, there's a reason for tropes. Tropes work well for people. Um, see, the, that trope is found in literature throughout the world and in stories throughout the world. Of the, uh, you know, you can even talk about Odin. Um, because Odin would travel oh, yeah. the world in the guise of an old man with one eye on a spear, and he expected hospitality because one of the one of the rules of Viking culture was that you were hospitable to travelers. And right. so, if he came to came to a home and he was turned away as they were inhospitable, he would curse the home. Um, so you see that trope. Uh, you see it in in Indian literature. You see it in Chinese literature. So it's a trope that that appeals across the universe of humanity. Um, anyway. Yeah. Now maybe talk about the Windfest Order, the very, and St. Battis and St. Norris, and um, what they represent in this world. Well, yeah, and St. Kalishnikov. Um, well, in the original uh, outline, which I talked about, uh, it had the Windfest Order. And the Windfists have two purposes. Um, their primary purpose, their created purpose, was specifically to focus on fighting what are called the Gants, giant ants. Um, and so to become a Windfist master, you have to be able to kill a Gant, a uh, full-size Gant, with your bare hands. Um, and that is, if you can think about an ant and taking one on with that, that is the size of a rhino and taking it on with your bare hands, um, it's it's as crazy as it sounds. Um, <laughs> it really is. Um, but uh, the genesis of the wind fist is not covered in the book. But they do. The other thing that they do is they act as mediators between uh, groups that are in conflict, human groups that are in conflict, to try to get the humans to focus on. We need to take care of the gants and then worry about our internal human issues. Um, and I very definitely drew on the, the sort of Shaolin monk concept, uh, with them. And, uh, and then when I turned it over to Chris and Casey, 
they kind of put a, how shall I put this, American spin on it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> with, uh, so they're, they're sort of Shaolin Monk. They, they were originally supposed to be sort of Shaolin Monk, and they ended up way more sort of canticle with Leibowitz with guns. Canticle for Leibowitz with guns. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I can speak when, to that a little bit, actually, because um, okay. one of the things that, that Chris and I discussed, you know, when we were when we were developing the Wind Fist Order and the character of, of Garmin was, you know, okay, so what's what's the sort of logical progression? How do you have this, um, you know, how do you take the, you know, the United States military elite organizations that, that were the the ancestors of, you know, the Wind Fist Order, and how do you take their current culture and morph it into this sort of, you know, um, monastic-like existence? And and one of the things that we you know that that we that we sort of keyed upon is 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 that culture piece of it um it was really funny to me and i know you know you're never supposed to read your reviews but i'm still new enough at this that i do that from time to time and there was a line in one of the reviews that cracked me up because um the the reviewer said uh this was on amazon the reviewer said something about um uh turning the U.S. military into a, a meme-worshipping death cult, um, which if you've ever met a member of the United States military, that's pretty much what we are already. So <laughs> I basically just took I basically just took that concept. Um, well, Chris, Chris and I took that concept, and Chris is, um, you know, familiar with the same culture because it's the culture he grew up in. You know, his dad um, – sorry, Chris, I'm telling your life story here, but his dad is a uh, – no, an Air Force, uh, Air Force pilot. And, um, so we, uh, um, we sort of took that and kind of ran with it and riffed it, riffed off of it. And we did plug in some, you know, some sort of Easter egg-like funny jokes like St. Battis and, and, um, St. Kalishnikov. Um, but that's the kind of thing that makes, you know, me and the people I work with and, and, you know, the customers who are also military people, um, that, that we, that we work with. Um, you know, that's the shit that we laugh at. That's the shit that we find funny and the shit that we find motivating. Um, and, um, and so we just sort of extrapolated that to the nth degree and lo and behold, we had our monastic culture. <laughs> There's, well, um, and if I could jump in that, part of, yeah, sure. Yeah, go, go Chris. Go, yeah. go part, part of that. Chris, go is, Chris. Uh, we, we, uh, we kind of extrapolated on just the, the culture in general. And what would be a modern equivalent of the Shaolin warrior monk, if you will, that, you know, it, and come to find out, it, it would take orphans or, you know, young men to, to train these guys. And it, we immediately went Jedi. And, um, so using that and wrapping that into the, the, the greater thing too, um, there was a Matthew McConaughey and Christian Bale had a dragon movie and I, I something fire and, um, Anyway, at one point you see Christian Bale and the, the old, now older kids, uh, the older men who in the last 20 to 30 years have been, you know, taking care of these kids and they're telling them stories and they're acting out Darth Vader versus Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader versus Obi-Wan Kenobi, but they're telling them as like almost legends, not stories. So Casey and I put our heads together and, uh, said, you know, and this is with guidance from John too saying, yeah, they, they kind of got more woo. Than, than uh, you know, strictly military, and 
you know, it's like how does how does the myth become the legend or the legend become the myth? And having these at when they find these kids, you know, these are going to be the masters are going to be in their twenties and thirties. They're going to have this this background right. of these stories. What are they going to tell these kids about these? these warrior monks and these great warriors and these great epic battles and inspire them to be. Well, you get things like Chuck Norris and, you know, General Battis and Luke Skywalker, et cetera. So that, that was kind of our inspiration for that. So, yeah, the, the meme-worshipping death cult is, is, is funny as hell, you know, anybody in the military, like Casey said, but it's also it, a, a natural progression of that question. When does the legend, yeah, when does sure. the man become the legend, when does the legend become the myth? Um, one of the aspects of it that, well, one aspect of of our current world, our real world, that very, very few people are aware of, uh, has to do with Delta Force. Um, uh, the uh, the original, first of all, Delta Force is one of four units within U.S. Army Special Warfare Squadron. Uh, there is Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, and Delta, and each of them has a particular purpose. Delta is what's referred to as it's, uh, Alpha is Administrative Activities Group, uh, Bravo is Logistics Activities Group, Charlie is Intelligence Activities Group, and Delta is Combat Activities Group. Um, so there's actually four portions to the U.S. Army Special Warfare Squadron. Um, and uh, the entire concept of Delta doesn't really derive from, like, U.S. Army Rangers. It does derive, they came out of Special Forces. But the early genesis of Delta Force was heavily, heavily influenced by the concept of the warrior monk. Um, so when you join Delta, you are essentially joining a Shaolin temple as a monk of combat. And that's something that gets explained kind of late when you're in special forces. But in the same way that Shaolin monks would constantly practice, Delta was the first unit to say the answer is constant practice. The answer is first selection and then constant practice. Um, and they were heavily influenced by the Oriental influence coming from their own services in Vietnam and from the sort of uh, hippie culture of the 1970s. And if you talk to the really old Deltas, almost all of whom are dead at this point, they're like, yeah, we basically wanted to be the guy in Kung Fu, except with guns. <laughs> so this took the whole thing and 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 and... and and I did this deliberately with the wind. It took the whole thing and it brought it full circle to the point that they now are literally the guy in Kung Fu with guns. Yeah, the, the, there's a lot of this where, where you're, you're looking at this like, wow, this is really cool. And, and, and one of the reasons why it's really cool and some of the most outrageous stuff that you guys have in here is that it is actually coming from real life. And, th and that was one of my editorial challenges to you guys was to... Uh, uh, was to weave the the the, uh, the the weird stuff from real life into uh, uh, in, in, into the fiction, which I, I think you guys did very well. That was part one of a two-part interview. 
part two will be available next time on the podcast. Now we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, book one in the saga of the Forgotten Warrior. After the War of the Gods, the demons were cast out and fell to the world. Mankind was nearly eradicated by the seemingly unstoppable beasts. Until the gods sent the great hero Ram Rowan to save them, he united the tribes, gave them magic, and drove the demons into the sea. But as centuries passed, the descendants of the great hero grew in number and power. They became tyrannical and cruel, and their religion nothing but an excuse for greed. The people rose up, and the surviving royalty and their priests were made castless, condemned to live as untouchables. The age of law had begun. Ashok Vidal has been chosen by a powerful ancient weapon to be its bearer. He is a protector, a member of an ancient military order of roving law enforcers. No one is more merciless in rooting out those who secretly practice the old ways as Ashok. But Ashok isn't who he thinks he is. And when he finds himself on the wrong side of the law, the consequences lead to rebellion, war, and perhaps transformation. Now here is the latest entry in Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. Chapter 52 Ashok could barely see through the haze of blood and hate. Where have you taken her? The wizard weakly held up his remaining hand. Wait. Barely slowing, Ashok snatched up another spear from the ground. Where? Where is Thera? Don't. The Grand Inquisitor sent me. You're not allowed. Omand? That made no sense. He'd obeyed his orders and gone willingly to his punishment. Ashok didn't know this man. No games, wizard. Where is she? Nowhere you'll ever find her. He snarled as he grabbed for a pouch at his belt. The area around the wizard was consumed by darkness. Ashok hurled the spear into the center of the black, but when it dissipated, the spear was embedded in the dirt where the wizard had been. Only his body had turned into a massive pile of swarming insects. The swarm immediately spread outward, flying, scuttling, and burrowing away. Ashok swatted and stomped at them, cursing. But within a few heartbeats, the insects had disappeared. The wizard had escaped. Ashok sank to the ground, battered, bleeding, burned, with nothing left to give. The heart of the mountain was the only reason he was still alive, and he knew that if he closed his eyes and simply gave up, that would be the end of him. Ashok held on, just out of spite. Keita appeared, his face swollen and bruised, looking toward the distant peaks where the flying wizard and his prisoner had disappeared from view. They took the prophet. I tried to stop them. I don't... I don't know what to do. Why didn't you tell me who Thera was? The Forgotten said I had to test you, trust you first. You're still alive. The faithful servant sacrificed was Angruvadal. You're the one. You have to know what to do. What do we do, Ashok? First, survive. 
Kita hadn't noticed that they were being approached by a small crowd of Somsak warriors and Jarlang workers, but Ashok had. There weren't that many, but enough to easily finish Ashok off in the sorry state he was in. The group stopped, split into two halves, each one nervously eyeing the other. A young warrior, his facial markings only recording a handful of battles, broke off by himself and approached. When he was a few strides away, he stopped and asked, Is it true? Does the forgotten truly speak again? Ashok had no idea, but Keita boldly stepped forward. Yes, the old gods have chosen a prophet to speak through, but I'm only the keeper of names. The prophet has been taken by these wizards. This is our general. Keita pointed at Ashok. But we need help to rescue her. The young warrior looked to his compatriots. There were a few stern nods to give him courage. Then he turned back, earnest and imploring to speak on their behalf. We want to remember. There were no dreams to trouble his sleep, only a profound sense of loneliness. For a man who only wants to die, you're remarkably bad at it. Ashok woke up on a cot inside a humble dwelling. A large fire was burning in a stone pit. He remembered being taken to a farm somewhere near Jarlang, but was unsure how long he'd been out since. Every muscle in his body ached. His skin was raw and stinging, and the fire had burned most of his hair off. The simple act of breathing was torture. Worst of all was the contorting pain in his guts from the bolt wound. He noted all of those things, and then paid them no further mind. He was surprised when he saw who it was who had spoken. Jagdish was sitting on a stool next to the cod. I must hand it to the Somsak. Despite looking like fools, their surgeons get a lot of practice stitching men back together. The fact you're healing so fast has got the fanatics out there dancing about praising false gods' miracles. Apparently, they've elected you general or something. That's an archaic rank no house uses anymore. But I think that's equivalent to a fonto. Not too shabby a promotion from prisoner. The forgotten picked him, not us. Ashok turned his head to see that Keita was standing at the foot of the cot, arms folded, giving Jagdish a disapproving scowl. I'm sorry, Ashok. I tried to turn him away, but then he threatened to duel me. It's all right, Keeper. Jagdish was the warden of my prison. He's an honorable man. And these Somsak who've pledged to serve him aren't fanatics. Some of them have been practicing religion in secret. They're faithful, who've heeded the call to... Ashok cut Keita off. You're a long way from Cold Stream, Rosalda. I found a worker who's got a gift for tracking magic, and we followed you. It was quite the journey. I must admit, this is the farthest I've ever been from home. So that was it, then. Asphodel had caught their fugitive at last. I'm assuming you have a legion waiting for me outside. You won't need it, and Gruvedal has been destroyed. I was told. I truly am sorry. That is a tragedy. There were almost no memories of the time before the sword. Of his life since, there had been a brief time where Ratul had forced him to live without Angruvadal. 
and that had driven him to undertake desperate risks to get it back. That made Ashok think of himself and his only friend, huddled together for warmth in an ice cave. Two stupid children, too brave for their own good, trying to become real protectors. And Gruvedal had been his constant companion ever since. It was as if he'd lost a part of himself. The ghostly instincts and memories of all the bearers who'd come before, gone. For a people with no belief in life after death, at least the bearers had some measure of immortality. But now, they were all lost as well. Yes, a tragedy. I don't want to be the one to break the news to our house. But we survived twenty years without Angruvadal there to protect us. We will survive more. My brothers will hold. Our house will not fall. Jagdish said, our house. Ashok didn't bother to correct him. He lacked the energy to protest. But I've got no legion at my back, it's just me. Your escape brought even more dishonor to my name. Wizards slaughtered my men and blamed it on you. No unit will have me. I had to send my pregnant wife back to live with her family. Do you have any idea what that's like? My apologies, Rosaldo. They were good men. I didn't hurt any of your guards. I know that. And after seeing those dead wizards outside, I think they're the same group that attacked Cole's stream and Sukpo Bridge. My tracker, Gutch, found a mark on one and said they're known to magic smugglers as the Lost House, a degenerate lot who are always buying up black steel and demon bits. I intend to find those responsible for killing my men, and I'll make sure House Vidal learns the truth. I followed you all this way for the chance. I'll not have my son grow up with the shame of having a dishonorable failure as a father. We share a similar goal, warrior. Those wizards took someone very important to us, Keita said. The keeper looked to Ashok, uncertain. I know you were somehow being compelled to search for the prophet before, Ashok, and your reasons are your own. But regardless of what you decide to do now, I intend to find Thera. The wizard had claimed to work for Armand. More than likely, he'd just been a liar. But it forced Ashok to question the strange nature of the Grand Inquisitor's orders. If Armand truly was consorting with forbidden magic for some unknown reason, he would be dealt with. But until then, his word remained legally binding. Ashok had proven to be an imperfect instrument on its behalf, but he still believed in the law. The judges had declared that his punishment was to find and protect the prophet, so that was what he would do. My mission continues, Keeper. Ignoring the pain, Ashok forced himself off the cot. He stood there, swaying, one leg protesting until the dizziness passed. We will find her. Our paths converge once again. Jagdish stroked his beard thoughtfully. So you're supposedly a general now, and you've gathered a handful of fools who fancy themselves an army. Even a sad army needs officers. I would like to apply. Keita asked, What of your wife? 
she'll appreciate me more when my name is redeemed. Helping me may have the opposite effect on your name, Ashok cautioned. If not for me, then for the memory of my men. This is a risk I'm willing to take. Normally, Ashok would have tried to talk an honorable man out of joining with a gang of criminals. But they needed all the help they could get. I accept, Jagdish. Thank you. Then I will serve you until we expose these wizards, or the capital has us all executed as traitors. Jagdish bowed. It hurt to bend at the waist, but Ashok returned the gesture. Wonderful. So our god's army is to be led by men who don't believe in the gods, Keita muttered. And now we go to rescue a prophet without faith. Brilliant. I like these gods of yours, Keita, Jagdish said. They seem like an amusing bunch. So, General, what do you intend to call this little army of yours? The Sons of the Black Sword. They seem to approve of the choice. Ashok gestured toward the door. Please, both of you, allow me a moment to collect myself. I'll join you shortly. Once he was alone, Ashok had to know for sure. All of his wounds had been cleaned, stitched, and bandaged. But there was only one in particular that he was concerned with. He carefully unwound the cloth from his chest until he could peer down and see where he'd been impaled through the heart by Engruvidal's shard. Because it was a black steel wound, it would leave a grisly scar, but the injury was already sealed shut. Ashok could no longer feel the molten metal burning through his chest. It had cooled and solidified. He rested his palm against the wound and could feel the slow, measured heartbeat. There was something cold and hard beneath, waiting. The keeper had spoken of the concept many times, but Ashok did not know how to pray. The very idea was anathema to his being. He'd always thought of a belief in the forgotten as a terrible crime, reserved for superstitious malcontents. But there was no denying that he should be dead. Ashok suspected that his life had been miraculously spared because his work was not yet done. It seemed that even if he was not a believer, Angruvadal had been. Ashok knelt in front of the fire pit. That seemed as reasonable as anything else. As he looked into the flames, Ashok spoke loudly and clearly so that there could be no misunderstanding between them. Forgotten. If you are real, heed these words. I did not ask you to spare my life. I do not want this. I seek no favor, blessings, or glory. I will do what I believe to be right. That is all. If that is not what you are looking for, then ignite this shard and let me die now because I serve justice. I have given my oath to protect your prophet, so I will do so or die trying. I warn you now that if your cause is unjust, stay out of my way, because I am Ashok Vadal, and I will make sure even the gods regret crossing me. The general went to meet his army.
That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz and the discombobulating roar of a dragon from the Paladuro Canyonlands echoing across the staked plains and beyond. Plus thanks, praise, and gratitude to... Tony Weiskopf, Bain Publisher, and to John Ringo, Casey Ezel, and Christopher L. Smith, authors of Gunpowder and Embers. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. 